and welcome to Act Your Age, a podcast where two adults dive into young adult books in order to discuss how their appeal transcends age and other boundaries. I'm Corinne. And I'm Tasia. And today we are talking about the Six of Crows duology by Lee Bardugo with a very special guest returning to the podcast for the second time, our friend Jesse. Hey, Jesse. Hey, thanks for having me again. Uh, we're welcome so back. Excited to have you back. We, um, as we warned the first time you were here, that you would be a, a frequent guest. Um, we could not imagine talking about this particular duology without you because I know that we all have very strong feelings about specific characters here. So thanks for coming back twice in one month and doing the homework required of coming back twice <laughs> in one month. We really appreciate it. I would feel bad that your listeners are likely going to get sick of me, but at the same time, I don't mind being the person that you come to to talk about book boyfriends, uh, dark broody book boyfriend <laughs> this one definitely i can't imagine anyone that. getting sick of you so no, exactly. i think we're good before we get into the books itself um do we want to talk a little bit about what we're obsessing over this week or i guess it's been two weeks since the last time we were here uh what is uh, new and interesting in your guys's worlds right now besides the grease <laughs> which we're all like reading over and over again right now yeah, that's where you've got me stuck. I don't have anything besides the the Grishaverse. It's been pretty much my entire world and finals. And that's about all I've had time for. Yeah, that's pretty fair. That's pretty fair. I mean, the Grishaverse is very fun to get sucked back into. And it's a very rewarding reread, I felt. I guess I do have a different obsession. I did manage to squeeze in another two book series, I guess the first two books and what it's going to be a four book series. It's the From Blood and Ash series by Jennifer L. Armentrout. It is a fantasy series very much in the same vein as Sarah J. Moss. So if you're a fan of her books, they're very um, heavily romance fantasy books. And it's uh, again the first two books in a planned set of four books with like planned spin-off books coming but a really 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 good bo- book boyfriend i think a kind of fun fantasy world uh, with some betrayal and just kind of lots of twists and turns i inhaled both books in the matter of like four days and they're like 400 plus pages books so it was kind of impressive i can't stop thinking about them one of my other friends also read them and she, we just keep texting each other just random things we keep thinking about it so i guess it's pretty much an obsession the third book is coming out in april it ended on a kind of a cliffhanger and i'm sure i'm just going to be sitting here spinning my wheels until april so good for you jennifer l trout for sucking me in to the series, I think I said it to one of you at one point when I was reading, I was like, this is like candy. It's like not the best thing I've ever read in my life. It's not like the most nourishing thing I've ever read in my life, but it's like highly addictive and delicious. And I very much enjoyed it. So I guess that's my obsession right now. Jesse, anything that you've been reading, watching? Well, I did read the Grisha trilogy for the first time for your podcast. And I'm very glad I did because it gave me a really good perspective that we'll talk about um, for this duology. But For another book club, I read this series called Dash and Lily. They recently made a Netflix show based on the first book. And I very much did not like the first two books in the series. (laughs) Uh, But if there's a series I like have this compulsive need to finish it out. And I love the Netflix series that it was based on. And I recently read the third book in the series, which is Dash and Lily Mind the Gap. And Dash and Lily are in London. Fun. Um, but it also has to do with Lily takes a gap year too. So I think maybe it's like a play on words. Oh, cool. But I actually felt like the characters grew a lot 
in the third book. And I was pleasantly surprised by the way that the third book sort of ended up and the way the characters did grow and change in their relationship as well as in their lives. And I was pleasantly surprised despite vehemently disliking the first one. And they're middle grade books. I don't want to disparage them based on reading them sort of within uh, a different perspective. But yeah, unfortunately, I they do fit the uh, qualifications of obsessing over, even if I didn't love them. And, <laughs> and, but uh, I, I think it's worth mentioning that the Netflix show based on the first book is delightful and a fun Christmas appetizer if you're into that. And the books get better. Uh, watch the show. But uh, the third book is actually sort of delightful. So Excellent. All right. Well, with that, let's dive into this duology friends uh we have some quick book summaries here quick i say because a lot happens in these books which are is just really it would be hard to break down first of all but second of all i think we all found really rewarding on reread because we had forgotten a lot of what happened in these books which uh in many ways are just essentially really fun heist books so we're not going to go into too much detail about like the mechanics of the heist and that's not really what we're going to be talking much about today but um I, we do have some summaries here so Tasia, take it away Right. So the Six of Crows summary. Kaz Brecker is the leader of the Dregs, a gang in Ketterdam, a bustling trade city with a dark criminal underbelly. Kaz has carefully crafted his reputation as a criminal mastermind and thus draws the attention of one of Ketterdam's most prominent merchants, Jan Van Eck, who comes to Kaz with a proposition. Infiltrate the ice court in the country of Fjorda, where a scientist is being held after creating a drug called Yorda Parem, a dangerous substance that significantly amplifies Agrisha's power, but also leaves them with a deadly addiction to the drug. The prize? 30 million Kruga. This nearly impossible task will require an improbable crew, including Inej, otherwise known as the Wraith, a stealthy spy Kaz saved from the brothel. Jesper, a gunslinging sharpshooter with a weakness for gambling. Nina, a Grisha heartrender, a former Fjordan soldier who worked as a Grisha hunter, and most unlikely of all, Wyland Jan van Eck's own son, who has a penchant for explosives. Despite the odds, the crew infiltrates the ice core only to find the scientist dead. However, his son, Kue, survives, and given his knowledge of the drug, the crew takes him instead. The group successfully flees Fjorda, but only after Nina willingly takes Parem to save them all as they escape. With Nina battling the near-instant addiction caused by the Parem, Kaz and the rest of the crew set off to meet with Van Eck to trade Kuwait for the Kruga. On arrival, they learn Van Eck never intended to make the trade. Things go awry, and the book ends with Van Eck kidnapping Inej and Kaz vowing to get both his money and his girl. So that's the first one, and then on to Crooked Kingdom. The crew saves Inej and then plots to get the money owed to them from Van Eck and crush his reputation in the process. They ultimately succeed, but not without great costs. Matthias dies. The book ends with Nina, her power forever changed because of the Parem, setting off to Ravka, where she'll stop before taking Matthias back to Fjorda to be buried. Kuwait goes with her to further train in his Grisha powers and work on a Parem antidote. Wyland now has control of all his father's money and businesses, and with his help, Jesper seems poised to finally take control of his life. Kaz is still Kaz, but despite his protestations that he can never change his ways, he finds Inej's parents and provides her with a ship that she can use to help stop slavers like the ones that brought her to Ketterdam in the first place. The end. The end. <laughs> I said this before we logged on, but I was really tempted to end that summary of Crooked Kingdom with just saying they ultimately succeeded. Because this is like a 500 plus page book that has so many twists and turns. Yeah, how but, are you going to like, summarize yeah. 50 different... But like, they do it. Like, 
with lots of typical flair and everything we've come to expect from this crew. So I guess I think we want to start maybe by talking about some of the differences in this duology versus the Grisha trilogy, which in so many ways, they're such different books. I don't mean to speak for all of us, but I think I can confidently say that all of us much prefer this duology and think it's a lot better in a lot of ways than the trilogy uh, for a lot of reasons that we'll go into. Uh, but it's almost like shocking that this came from the same author in a lot of ways. I mean, obviously, it's the same world, but the writing and the level of depth these characters have is so shockingly different than in in the trilogy. I mean, you guys think that too. Yeah. The first book, like like we talked about in our last episode, we felt we all felt that Alina was kind of underdeveloped and boring and very blank slatey. And that is absolutely not the case for any of our six main characters in this series. Yeah. And I think a lot of that has to do with the fact that we get all of their POVs. And it, the first book is five of the six characters POVs and then in the second book we do get Wyland's POV as well so we just learn so much more about them in their internal ruminations and this, it's not even just that though but it's just like the layer of the layers that she gives each character it's really impressive character building and character growth from all of them and I, I think all yeah all three of us right read this duology first before reading the trilogy yeah and I think that was foundation. I think it came from you, Tasia, because that's what you did first. And so then I did it. And then I think Jesse did it uh, because, and I think it was smart because it made me want to read more about the trilogy because I liked the world so much, but it did at the time, like make it hard for me to really like the trilogy as much. But now this time reading them in chronological order, I've definitely found I'm more like into all of it. And I really appreciated knowing the trilogy as I knew it while reading this because you do get some Easter eggs and you get some additional world building that is very helpful knowledge from from the trilogy. So that was really fun to see. That's actually a really interesting around. question. Like I wonder because I always thought that because I didn't really like the the Grisha trilogy that much that if I had read that first, if I'd even want to read the duology based on kind of my tepid reaction to the trilogy. But now I wonder if I had read the trilogy first, if I would have liked it enough because I hadn't, I wouldn't have had, you know, the Six of Crows duology to compare it to if I would have liked it a little bit more. Yeah, that's a good point. It's kind of like a chicken and egg situation. Like right. it, it's just very circular in a lot of ways. And I, I, I think you're probably right. I think if we had read the trilogy first, we probably would have liked it more because we didn't have the expectation of the duology there yeah, she she set the bar really high with this duology. It yeah. is so good. The one thing I did like about reading it the opposite way, though, is that I was totally tricked by the book. So um, I guess if for some reason you're like all of us here who have only read the duology, haven't read the tr trilogy first. I guess I'm going to spoil the trilogy right now. But when I first read the duology, like they talk a lot about Elena sacrificing herself and being dead. So I was the first time I read the trilogy and went back. I was convinced that she was gonna die at the end and so when she didn't i was like very pleasantly surprised so that was kind of a fun benefit of reading the duology first so like this scheme that they come up with at the end of the trilogy to hide alina and let the world think she died works that was kind of interesting to to read in yeah, retrospect i really feel like i i owe your pod your podcast a, a debt of gratitude because i did read the duology and 
just the, the trilogy had been sitting on my shelf for a really long time. And I picked it up because of your podcast. And then because of the, doing this episode with you, I reread the duology in the chronological order. And it's just been such a gift to re-experience the books. You know, there's so many times where I, I, I wish I could sell my soul or whatever to reread a favorite book of mine again for the first time. And even though I had read this duology previously, getting to read it now after the trilogy and after listening to your episode, really going through it, made it feel like I was reading the series for the the first time because I, whereas the first time I read it, it was a fun sort of standalone story. This time I got to read it in context of this broader world and it really kind of fleshed it out so much better. So even though I did love this series before, I feel like it really... I like it even more now having read the trilogy, which I'm in the same boat as you all. And that it was good. It was pretty standard fare, uh, mm-hmm. but this is just completely rises above. Uh, it's, it's flabbergasting to me, just how much she improved between the trilogy and this duology. Yeah, totally. It's, yeah, it's really Im- impressive. I, I think probably has to do with, I think, you know, the, Shadow and Bone was her first ever book. And I think she shopped it around for a while. And then I think there's always a lot of publishing pressure when you are releasing a a trilogy or a a series and you have to do it really quickly. Um, And I think that probably resulted in the trilogy being just kind of one note and being what it was because you're working under those parameters. But it definitely seems like she was probably ruminating on this the whole time and uh, was able to really kind of implement things that she probably couldn't because of what she had set forth in Shadow and Bone however many years prior. And it's it was really gratifying to see. I was going to say, I also think it's um, it's entirely possible that as a first-time writer with the Grisha trilogy that she was probably put under pressure with um, like editors and stuff to, especially back in, like in the early 2010s when the Grisha trilogy, I think, was coming out to make it a little bit more tropey and a little bit more, like you said, Jesse, the standard fare. Um, because it is very formulaic and along the lines of so many other books that were coming out at that time that I think it makes sense that, you know, she would be under pressure to write a book like that. But then once she had established herself a little bit, she could kind of go off the rails like she did with uh, the duology. You can see her laying the tracks for it in the short stories that she wrote, the Taylor short story, as well as the Darkling short story that were at the end of at least my paperback version of the trilogy. Um, I don't particularly love first-person narratives, and that's what the Grisha trilogy is. And it works like very well, I think, especially when you get Alina's just limited point of view. Um, but what's nice about fleshing out the different points of view as well as using third person narrative instead of first person is I think you flesh things out a little bit more in terms of the world building. And you can see the, the trail of with the Jenya story, as well as the darkling story, um, her flirting with this idea of using other POVs and how she could build on that. Yeah, that's a really good point. So I think building off of that, and I think building off of something we talked about in the trilogy episode last time, and I think this was in like our spoiler section about our you know speculations about where the series was going and where the TV show is going. Um, one of the things we talked about was our, I guess, issues with the world building here and how it's one thing in particular we really don't like uh, for, for some reasons. I know, Tasia, you have a lot of notes about this if you want to dive in. Uh, yeah, I think that the way she draws parallels from like our own cultures, just think it would have been so much better if she had built something just whole cloth, you know, and not borrowed 
heavily from cultures in our own real world because it comes off very like cartoonish almost. It's so simplified and um, just generalized. And uh, like, so obviously the Kalish, it's all about luck and red hair and green. It's like, okay, that is just the most basic, like St. Patrick's Day version of Irish culture you could possibly, you know, represent. And uh, the Shuhan are just kind of a broad Asian description it's just it's not good yeah and with the shoe on in particular it's frustrating because they're just like very broadly painted as kind of villainous in a lot of ways right that's the problem is that they're pretty much in in the grisha trilogy and in this duology they are the villains essentially or one of the villains right and i mean like fyrda is obviously kind of villainous too in in a different way but also white culture is not something that has has ever really had to struggle to uh, not be marginalized in the same way that like Asian cultures have. So it's it, it doesn't bother me that it, we're going to pick like this stand in for Scandinavia and have them also be kind of villainous. But the depiction of like the only Asian characters in this story be, of, of being kind of of evil and they're, you know, they kill Grisha just like the fear to do and that Quay is terrified of being sent back to them. It's it's just not great. And then it allows her to kind of lean on just, I feel like, not stereotypes, but just like physical appearance too much. I mean, when Wylan is tailored to look like Quay and then he kind of can use that as a shield, but then also sometimes problematic to because he's appearing to be shoe and what that means when he travels about Catterdam. It all just feels kind of icky. <laughs> like I, yeah. I like, I like the plot twist of, of him being tailored to look like Quay. Like that's great. But why do they have to be Asian? I don't think that they did. So I, I mean, I agree. I think she could have just built something from scratch. Just tell us what the countries are. Like, why does it have to be, I mean, people are smart enough, I think, to f- figure out what that there are different countries and there's different right. worlds. Right. Like, are so obvious to our own world that it's like, yeah. like, how much effort did you really put into this? It is just so generalized and simplified. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's frustrating. I think it is one of the critiques of the, of the series um, in, in a lot of ways. It, I think that's why we kind of wanted to address it up front because it just is bothersome and there's no real kind of, way around it and it's interesting giving some of the topics and that we like talk about in this book and in particular like Matthias's storyline comes to mind and we'll get into that but I don't understand how like an author who can write kind of that storyline can also just kind of paint with such broad strokes about her world building um but anyway we just wanted to kind of address that up front in particular because it is I think an issue but it's probably one of our only issues with this series that really has so many wonderful things to offer. Uh, so, I mean, keeping that in mind, let's dive in, I think, to the the heart and soul of this book, which is the characters. Obviously, in the show, we like to talk about themes and how they uh, can really apply to anyone. Here, each character has so much going on. There's so many themes that each is unique to each of them. I think we're just going to start off and we're going to go character by character. And I think there's no other place to start than with the series, I guess, protagonists to the extent that there is one protagonist <laughs> in a book with six different POVs alternating, and that's Kaz Brecker. It's <sighs> funny because <laughs> protagonist is such a funny word to apply to him because, yes, he is like the 
the lead character being the protagonist, but you normally think protagonist and you think like benevolent, like goodness and no. Yeah. It's not, that is not our Kaz Brecker. Right. So I think what is really interesting about Kaz is that he is this very dark, dark character. And I think that this is, I don't want to put words in her mouth, but I'm assuming that when Aubrey was here last time and she talked about Lee doing a darker character better in later books, I think she's talking about Kaz uh, because he has this absolutely horrifying backstory, which has turned him into this very, very dark character who is very violent and is, is just morally bankrupt. Yes, absolutely. And yet you learn so much more about him and what makes him tick and what makes him the way that he is. And then you can see better the seeds of good that he still has within him in a lot of ways. So I think what is ultimately really interesting about Kaz and it ties into Inej as well. And we'll talk about her in a second, but is this idea of trauma and what that can do to you in a lot of ways. And I think that that's kind of the, the biggest thing with Kaz and how it manifests in, in him, in this propensity for, for violence and how that comes about. And I think it's just, it's so, so interesting. I guess we should maybe talk about what his backstory is. And despite how horrifying we all find it, someone want to dive in and give our listeners a little spiel about Kaz's backstory. How about you, Jesse? Oh gosh. <laughs> <laughs> this is hazing. Um, <laughs> no one wants to talk about it. It's so <laughs> we should, so, like, you all know that when we were all reading this, we all had to like pause before we got to this part in the book because it is really so upsetting. So yeah. Sorry, I think Jesse. all of us stopped reading several times and just in the fear of getting to this backstory. Yeah. So Kaz shows up in Ketterdam with his older brother, Jordy, and they're young kids fresh off the farm, and they're coming to the big city um, for the, the chance to make it big. And they run in basically with the wrong people. They run into Pekka Rowlands in disguise, uh, in disguise of a, a nice man, a nice family man. And he takes them into his home. He has them meet his wife. He feeds them. He has them meet his, his young daughter who Kaz bonds with. And he basically cons them all out of all of their money and then disappears. And because they don't have any money, they're forced out into the, the mean streets of Ketterdam. And in the course of that, Jordy becomes sick and ends up dying of uh, basically uh, some sort of sickness, some plague. And in order for Kez to survive, he has to, I can't believe you guys are making me say this, <laughs> use, use his brother's dead plague-ridden body as a flotation device in order to save himself. And in the course of doing this, he gets... Uh, would you call it a phobia or uh, from this, the trauma of this situation, he basically can't touch other humans with his, his bare uh, skin. And he has to affect this. Everyone thinks it's sort of an affectation, but he has to wear gloves. And the reason is because he can't touch anyone and he can't get close to anyone. And he vows vengeance on Pekka and everyone associated with him. And that's sort of how uh, young Kaz becomes the Kaz, uh, the dirty hands in, in the book. 
Yeah. I'm so, sorry you made you do you do that. Thank Jessie. you for taking that bullet. Thank you. <laughs> it, fill in the gaps. Oh my God. I mean, it really is just so, so horrifying <laughs> that like he can't like it's described so viscerally. It is. Yeah. It is horrible. Yeah. Like what is happening to Jordy's body? It's like basically decomposing as they're floating down like one of the canals. And it's like bloated and distended and waterlogged. And he has to cling on to survive. And he, before that, they're like pressed into like the body men's boat, I think they call it, where like all the bodies have been like put together to like, you know, row them out to like wherever they're going to be burned and stuff. And it like, he has to, he he's, he's sick too. And so he's like surrounded by dead bodies. Cause I think he's dead. It's just like, it's truly horrifying. I mean, yeah, I think phobia is definitely a good way to put it. Also, I think he just has terrible PTSD and that when he comes into contact with someone else's skin, he immediately flashes back to that feeling at, that he had clinging to Jordy's body to survive. And it really impacts so much of his life. And we get so much about this. Uh, but yeah, you're right. He definitely then, he, so he vows vengeance, right? And he crafts this persona and allows the world to run with it of this idea of dirty hands. This just truly, this bastard of the barrel, just absolutely ruthless criminal mastermind. There's all these rumors about why he wears his gloves because they're stained with the blood of his victims and things like that. And it's really just for this truly heartbreaking reason that he, he wears them. And it's, it's so hard to see it. But then what I think is really interesting about Kaz is that a, obviously that makes him incredibly sympathetic uh, and kind, it, it doesn't excuse some of the awful kind of morally bankrupt things that he does, but it provides a reason for it. But then it also lays the groundwork for this again. I, I think he is the protagonist, like we're we're rooting for him, but he is very he has a lot of, of issues, which I think are really relatable to the reader. Um, you know, a lot of times he, his PTSD, I guess, manifests itself in kind of like panic attacks. And there's really interesting depictions of that, which is really, I guess, validating to read as someone who's had them as well. And who has struggled with that before. Yeah. One of the first real depictions of it on the page is when it's from an edge's point of view and it's when they're uh, entering the ice core and they're doing so as prisoners. And so they're getting into this cart and it's packed with other prisoners. So in order for them to carry out this part of the heist, they need to uh, basically be chained together, very t- packed very tightly in this car, which is Kaz's worst nightmare essentially. And so um, and it's from Anedge's point of view, and she says, Anedge could tell Kaz's breathing had gotten worse. Shallow, rapid pants like an animal caught in a trap. It was a sound she'd never thought to hear from him. It was because she was listening so closely that she knew the exact moment when Kaz Brecker, Dirty Hands, the Bastard of the Barrel, and the Deadliest Boy in Ketterdam fainted. I'm extremely claustrophobic, and I can't really take public transportation, um, like, particularly the um, underground, like the L in Chicago, the subway, it's really, really hard for me to do. Um, I have to time it really well. So I'm not on with a lot of people. And if there's too many people, I just can't do it. And to see Kaz's, to see written out Kaz's panic attacks, it was sort of revelatory for me because it's exactly 
my own feelings to be packed in like a tight space like that. Um, you know, your breath gets really quick and shallow and your heart is just racing and you're not in any real danger. At least for, I'm not, I'm Kaz sort of is cause he's a prisoner. Uh, but it's your mind starts playing tricks on you and, and telling you something that you know is not real, but your just body is acting like it is. And it's just completely scary. And one of the, and the coping mechanisms they tell you to use are, you know, deep breathing, but also focusing on one thing. And for Kaz, it's Anej's voice. And he uses that to bring himself out of the panic attacks. And it's, you can tell the like either suffers from panic attacks herself or has talked to a lot of people that do because it's an extremely realistic portrayal of it on the page. And it's not something that Kaz just immediately solves. It's something that he struggles with the entire time. Yeah. It's, I love that Inej's voice is the one that always grounds him whenever he's like in a rough spot or whatever, because it kind of goes both ways and we'll talk about it more when we get to Inej. But yeah, I really like that. Um, and I think Lee did a really good job of crafting this character who is so dangerous and so frightening and so morally, you know, gray, but so vulnerable at the same time. And I think that's a really difficult line to walk. And she yeah. does it really well. And I like to then like a natural continuation of that is kind of the shame he feels about that, because that's something that a lot of people feel with any sort of you know, mental struggles, whether or not be panic attacks, PTSD, depression, anxiety, whatever, however that manifests, a lot of people feel shame in displaying that to others. And I think Kazan says, uh, you know, when he's thinking about that situation, he says, Kaz felt ill, though he'd trusted her with his life countless times. It felt much more frightening to trust her with this shame. And he he takes that shame and he tries to spin it into this persona of, of dirty hands. And he's very successful at doing that. But that becomes its own sort of crutch for him to prevent himself from dealing with these issues that he has in any real ways. And I think what that what makes him a really gratifying character then is to see how he eventually starts to kind of break down this barrier that he's created for himself with others to kind of shield himself from that sense of shame. He's tried to bury anything good about him himself and kind of just reinforce this experience exterior persona that he's created for himself. Uh, but by the end, we see that he has started to display some humanity again in a lot of ways. That's really compelling. You know, the book starts with him thinking about how Inej is always trying to pull some decency from him and he doesn't want to show her that. And then at the end, and we'll talk about the end, he is does one of the most decent things I've ever read. It's a really interesting breaking down of that shame that I'm sure a lot of people do feel about how some of these mental processes affect their lives and in how it, it doesn't have to be something to be ashamed of in the long run. So that's really interesting. And then I think on top of that, not only is Kaz this kind of internally broken character, he is physically broken as well. Uh, he uses a cane for walking purposes. He uh, broke his leg and it didn't set right. And he needs this cane. But again, rather than just 
letting that be, he uses that again as an, a per, an additional layer of the Dirty Hands persona. Oh, yes. He says, the bone didn't set right and he limped ever after. And so he found himself a fabricator and had his cane made. It became a declaration. There was no part of him that was not broken, that had not healed wrong. And there was no part of him that was not stronger for having been broken. The cane became part of the myth he built. No one knew who he was. No one knew where he came from. He'd become Kaz Brecker, cripple and confidence man, bastard of the barrel. So I don't feel like I can really speak to having a physical disability like that. Although Lee herself uh, occasionally has to use a, a cane to walk. I forget exactly what it's some disease that affects her bones. And she does have to use a cane occasionally to walk. And I think drew heavily on her own experiences with that and giving Kaz this attribute. And I think that it's kind of interesting because, yeah, I think at one point when we were reading this, you know, Jesse, you said something about how like he has like shame about needing the cane, but then how he also uses it to establish his dominance, right? Like it's an additional like physical weapon he can use in a fight and people are terrified of his ability to use it in that way. So it's kind of a really interesting way to show that, you know, your weaknesses don't have to be just weaknesses, that they can also be strengths. And then I think what is interesting then is that we can't really talk about Kaz without then talking about Inej because they are kind of the center point in a lot of the overarching themes of the book, including forgiveness and in, in moving past some of these traumas. So Inej has her own traumas as well. Yeah. So um, when Inej was 14, she was basically kidnapped from her bed. She is Suli and she was traveling with her family in a caravan and she had slept in a little bit and these slavers came and snatched her from her bed and put her on a boat to Kitterdam where she was sold to a brothel till Kaz essentially showed up one day. She snuck up on him and no one sneaks up on Kaz. So he was pretty impressed by that and he offered to buy up her indenture so that she could work for the dregs. Got a lot of her own touch-related trauma. Like she doesn't like to be touched either. So right. I like that they have like it's such a weird thing to say, but that they have complementary traumas. Yeah, like their their traumas they make sense together. So like neither one of them is going to be pushing the other to do something that they are are just like not emotionally capable of yet, and they can help each other work through that. And I think that's really interesting. Yeah. And I think it's really interesting too. So, you know, Kaz looks at his his past and the fact that he he and Jordy were kind of these weaklings when they came to Ketterdam and it allowed them to fall victim to Pecorellans and his scheming and ultimately cost them everything, including Jordy's life. And his way of dealing with that is just to bury deep down any humanity that he has left to the point that he's just tries to ignore it completely. And Inej kind of has a different approach to it because she is other than Matthias, probably the most religious and most spiritual of the crew. She has a very deep connection to this, the saints that we've kind of learned a little bit about in the trilogy. Uh, she's named all of her knives after the saints, including Sancta Alina again, kind of perpetuating this idea that Alina did sacrifice herself and is the saint to be venerated. But her way of dealing with the trauma instead is to think about whether or not she she knows she's still a good person. She hates having to do all of these things that she has to do to survive. She hates that she's killed people. She hates that she's had to 
dupe honest men out of out of their money, out of their livelihoods. She hates that she's had to do all of that. And her internal ruminations are whether or not she is still a good person, whether or not she will be welcomed back by her family if she ever sees them again. I mean, it's just a really interesting comparison to Kaz because they take, again, similar traumas in a lot of ways that manifest itself in the inability to touch others and struggling with being touched um, after she's had to essentially offer up her body to strangers. She kind of goes about it a a different way. It's really interesting to me to see how that kind of plays out and how her journey with that goes. And again, I think there's some really good moments that she has where she's dealing with that. like whether or not she can be saved. I think when she's fighting with the Danyasha, is that her name? The other woman, you know, she's like, I never took, you know, I'm innocent. Like I don't, you know, take lives that don't deserve them. And Inej thinks, was she innocent? She regretted the life she'd taken, but she would take them again to save her her own life, the lives of her friends she'd stolen. She'd help Kaz blackmail good men and bad. Could she say the choices she made were the only ones put before her? Innocence was a luxury and Inej did not believe her saints demanded it. I love that line. <laughs> it's so good. So she like the whole last fight she has with Danyasha is yeah, just so good. It's yeah. really interesting to see it because that's like towards the end of Crooked Kingdom, and it's really interesting to see like where she is at that point versus where she starts off with feeling about herself. There's this quote from Inez talking in Six of Crows about her father and how her father was really a guiding force for her in a lot of ways in her her life, and she's thinking about what he told her about love and how in particular it may apply to Kaz. And it says, you know, many boys will bring you flowers, but someday you'll meet a boy who will learn your favorite flower, your favorite song, your favorite sweet. And even if he is too poor to give you any of them, it won't matter because he will have taken the time to know you as no one else does. Only that boy earns your heart. That felt like a hundred years ago. Her father had been wrong. There had been no boys to bring her flowers, only men with stacks of Kruga and purses full of coin. Would she ever see her father again, hear her mother singing, listen to her uncle's silly stories? I'm not sure I have a heart to give anymore, Papa. And so to see her eventually then reckon with this trauma that she has has felt and learn that she is still a good person and it doesn't matter because you know her saints will forgive what she has had to go through because she did not have the room to be weak. She had to do what she did in order to survive. It's such a rewarding journey for her. <laughs> and I think she she basically goes through this whole journey just during the span of a like what is it like a six story climb that she has Ugh. to take in in an incinerator in six of crows and she goes through like this whole ass journey on this climb because she's faltering several times and several times she's like just let go what's the point but then she kind of thinks about it and she finds a new purpose and with that she is able to like you said reckon with her trauma and decide that she does have something to put into the world and something to do with her life aside from continuing to lose her, you know, quote unquote innocence. And uh, by the, by the end of the climb, by the time she finishes it, she decides that she's going to pay up her indenture, buy a ship and dedicate her life to hunting slavers 
the same people that took her. I'm going to read it here. Even as she gave thanks, she knew that the rain was not enough. She wanted a storm, thunder, wind, a deluge. She wanted it to crash through Ketterdam's pleasure houses, lifting roofs and tearing doors off their hinges. She wanted it to raise the seas, taking hold of every slaving ship, shatter their masts, and smash their hulls against unforgiving shores. I want to call that storm, she thought. And four million Kruger might be enough to do it. Enough for her own ship, something small and fierce and laden with firepower. Something like her. She would hunt the slavers and their buyers. They would learn to fear her and they would know her by name. The heart is an arrow. It demands aim to land true. She clung to the wall, but it was purpose she grasped at long last and that carried her upward. She was not a lynx or a spider or even the wraith. She was a Najgafa and her future was waiting above. So you just said something really interesting. You said as she's describing the ship that she wants and she says she compares it to herself. She says something like her. And in the end, Kaz purchases a ship for her and names it the Wraith. I love it. So I think that's an interesting tie that I had never noticed until just the second. I think that's really cool. And I also love too that she wants to make people learn to fear her, which is kind of exactly what Kaz has done too. That's how he takes his trauma and he wants to to create this person again that everyone learns to fear, but she kind of does it for a different way. She wants to do good with it. Kaz just wants to establish dominance and power so he can never be said to be weak again. And I think it, that's something she actually learns from him because the first time when when they're talking, I think for the first time, and he's offering to buy her indenture, And he tells her, you're a dangerous girl. And it's the first time, it's like the first time since she's been kidnapped that she's able to kind of like grab at that agency and think of herself as something dangerous and not not a victim, but something to be put out into the world that is a force of her own, you know? And so, and that whenever she has those weak moments, whenever she's kind of getting her ass kicked or she's, you know, whatever is happening, she thinks I am a dangerous girl. I'm a dangerous girl. And it becomes this refrain that she uses to, to put confidence into herself. Yeah. And then at the end, the very last chapter of this book or this duology is Inej going to like threaten Pecoral. And so she's kind of like embraced this dark side of herself rather than just taking the ship that Kaz gives her and leaving town and setting off on this kind of high-minded noble quest she goes and threatens Pecker Rollins within an inch of his life and tells him if he ever goes back to Ketterdam, she's going to cut his heart out, essentially. Well, I kind of love that exchange because it's like, at the end, Kaz's last act in the series is to do something just outrageously decent by finding Inej's parents and buying her this ship and paying off her indenture and doing all this other stuff. And her last act in the series is to kind of, in turn, go do something nasty for him by chasing Pecker Rollins off forever. I just you love to see it. Well, and then there's a quote to you, and it's from Matthias, but he's thinking of himself at the time and his own prejudices against the Grisha and how he's moved past them. And we'll talk about those in a second. But, you know, he he's talking about the Grisha here, but he says, you know, the Grisha weren't inherently evil. They were like anyone else, full of the potential to do great good and also great harm. And that's humanity, right? And I think that both Inej and in particular Kaz are working towards that balance. Kaz is not an inherently evil person, despite his wanting that to be the case. He he wants to bury any sense of human decency he still has and hide that from everyone, and particularly from Inej. But he he has more to himself. And there's it's all about finding that balance and in doing what you need to survive. And that's what I think makes Kaz and Inej in particular such an interesting pair to see them kind of gravitate 
through some of the same things, but in very different ways. I know we're talking through individual characters. And what's really nice about the way that this series goes is that you get to be on journeys with these characters. Like you get to have fun with the heist and see what happens. But I definitely think self-discovery would be one of the themes that I would glean from this series. Mm -hmm. And I think it's more obvious maybe in a character like Jesper who starts off, you know, with all these gambling debts and, you know, fast and loose. And he's just sort of a gunslinger. And at the end, he really starts to embrace who he is as a Grisha and using his power. But then I think Inej starts the series sort of embarrassed like about the idea of facing her parents, um, like about who she's become. You know, I think she embraces the fact that she can be a dangerous person. But at the end of the day, she, you know, this is who she is now. She is a killer. And this is who, you know, would her parents accept her as who she is now, what the city has made her, what Kaz has made her. And she doesn't want to shy away from it. She wants to embrace it. And I think that's an act of, of, of self-discovery too. And I really like the way that all the characters deal with forgiveness and what that means for them on their journey. And at the end sort of of Crooked Kingdom, Kaz straight up asked Inej, you know, would you tell your parents everything that happened to you, all the things that you've had to do to survive? And Inej says, I honestly don't know, but I would give anything to have that chance. And it's just really powerful, I think. Yeah, it's just at these two, man. It's just, it's so... It's so good to see two characters who are both so damaged in their own ways find an, a, a chance to be able to to better themselves and move on through their trauma and really help each other both in in different ways in a way that I can, it's almost like hard to say why it's so satisfying to me. I don't know that I can exactly say it's so satisfying. I mean, there's some like wonderful swoon-worthy moments between the two of them, which we will certainly talk about at the end, but just this this understanding of, e- of each other and and the push. It's a lot of Inej pushing Kaz towards being better, but then how he is also able to make her forgive herself and again, be self-aware of herself and who she is now. She's never going to be the Inej Gaffa that came to Katerdam. That girl is gone but that doesn't mean this new version of her is, is any is any less valuable or any more. I really like the way they um they help each other without necessarily leaning on each other or requiring the other person to give something up to to be there for the other person. Like there are several moments where Kaz he wants to beg and edge to stay when he knows that she wants to leave when you know everything is said and done. But he knows that that's not his right. And that he doesn't own her. And at one point when Pekka Rollins is demanding that the Wraith come back because, you know, she's part of the dregs and he's the leader of the dregs. And he says, you know, she doesn't belong to you. And Kaz says she doesn't belong to anybody. And then likewise, when Inej, you know, she she sees how how broken Kaz is and she wants him to get better, but she also doesn't put that on herself, which I think is such like a breath of fresh air. It says um, she would fight for him, but she could not heal him. She would not waste her life trying. And I think that's such a good message, especially for the girls reading this, especially the young girls reading this, um, because so much of what we're indoctrinated with from birth, essentially, by all the media that we consume is that women are there to be sanctuaries for broken men. And there's this really famous quote from the L word that says, it's not a fucking woman's job to be consumed and invaded and spat out so, so so that some fucking man can evolve. And that's so much of what our media tells us is these broken dudes that are like, 
you know, your only your love will heal me and make me a whole man. And I think I hate that. I hate that so much. And so I love here where Inej is like, no, that's not, you know, they can go their own separate ways. They can stay together. But the only way that's going to happen is, is if they are equal partners and she is not there to fix him. Yeah. That's one of the best parts of, of, of this series, I think. And, you know, I guess, spoiler alert for my favorite quote <laughs> later, but and that's just constant in that throughout. And one of the things she says to Kaz at the end of Six of Crows when he asks her to, you know, stay in Ketterdam, stay with me, stay. And uh, and she's like, and, and and what would that look like? You know, would you just be, you know, basically avoiding touch with me at all times? Like, how how would that even work? And she says to him, you know, I'll have you without armor, Kaz Brecker. I will not have you at all. And she stays so true to that through to the very end. I mean, that quote that you just read, Teja, is literally in the last chapter where she goes to meet him at the docks. She doesn't know why he's brought her there, but she just thinks to herself, you know, I maybe there is some hope for Cass, but I I can't be the one to heal him. I can't do that for him. I, I can't continue to watch him continue to try to be dirty hands. Um, and I think the ending for them is, is hopeful because she realizes that he's finally tapping into that decency that she's always hoped was there. And he also makes efforts to have some physical contact with her as well. But um, it, it's just so gratifying to see, despite this connection that they have, that she just, she knows that what her dad said to her about a boy will bring you flowers and he'll know your heart. She knows that she needs to hold on to that. And it's, and it comes nice full circle because I think Kaz gives her the equivalent of what flowers and sweets would have been for past. And as he brings her a chance to do this thing on her own, to go out into the world, even though it means leaving him to hunt slavers and also to bring her back her parents. It's, he knows this new version of Inej and this new version of her heart so much better than anyone else that he she gets what she needs from him or the beginnings of what she needs from him in that moment. Ah, I just love it. The journey. So I I really want to also bring it back to what you said before about Kaz being sort of an answer to wanting more nuance and more depth in a character like the Darkling. Um, there's a lot in the Darkling that he wants possession of Alina. He wants possession of Alina's powers um, and he wants her. And I really think that Kaz is a really good response to that sort of domination. There's another book that Corinne and I really love, um, The Invisible Life of Addie LaRue. And Mm -hmm. I've mentioned this to you before, but um, there's a similar sort of love triangle in that story. And one of the characters is having a conversation with the titular Addie character. And he says, you know, I love you and I want you. And she says to him, if you really loved me, then you would want to set me free. And Kaz even thinks to himself, you know, I'm going to get my money. I'm going to get my girl. Anesh can never be really his, not really, but he would find a way to give her the freedom he promised her so long ago. And so for Kaz, I really think that is like in the hierarchy of needs, love edition. Um, it's just sort of hitting enlightenment because he's reached that point where he loves her so much that he wants her to be free. He wants her to, you know, if you love something, set it free or whatever. This is pretty much the literal embodiment of it. And I think it's a really good answer to the Darkling. You know, everybody loves the Darkling. I was drawn to him. I shipped him with Alina, much to Corinne's dismay a little (laughs) bit in the beginning of my Grisha trilogy journey. But I think Kaz is a really good way to take a character like that who's sort of archetypical in YA books, this sort of dark brooding man. And Kaz is a really good answer to that. It's like, you can have that too, but you can also have him be worthy of you. Yeah. Ugh, those two. But 
it's not we don't just have Kaz and Nush in this book, which is what makes it incredible. We have four other characters who are also just as great. I think maybe the meatiest in terms of relevant themes these days is Matthias, who is this guy who has been indoctrinated by the belief system of his country to think that Grisha are evil and they need to be captured. And he thinks put on trial, which is really, we find out just a sham to ultimately kill them. Um, he works as a, a Grisha hunter and that is how he meets Nina. Um, she'd been captured before the events of this book and they are on a ship back to Fjorda and there's a shipwreck and Nina and Matthias are the only ones to survive or so they think, and they have to kind of quest to survive together. And his journey about confronting one's own prejudices is really so, so incredible too. Yeah. So my first reading of this book, I was not at all interested in Matthias. Um, he has a very like rigid structure. I think, so I think Corinne, did you say that this was uh, Matthias was Lee's easiest character, right? Because he just says like, he's a very easy honor code and that's yeah, I, just I, how he thinks. I read that Lee said that he was the easiest right because he's very dogmatic is the word she used. Yeah. And my first time reading, I was so interested in Kaz. I was so interested in Edge and really just every other character except Matthias. But on this reading, I just really got into Matthias's arc from this, like he's literally in the beginning of the book, like when his first introduction, he's strangling Nina. <laughs> um, and then at the end, you know, he's pledging his life to her. And it's just such a beautiful growth that he shows throughout the two books. And he's totally struggling with it. Even at the end, you know, when he watches Nina use her, po his, her power, he thinks to himself, uh, you know, it's, it's against, it's unnatural. And then he stops and he recalibrates. He says, no, it's not unnatural. Like this is beautiful. This is, you know, the woman I love and he's still working through it. Um, yeah. It's like that thing where you say like, yeah. <laughs> it's like that thing where you say where um, your first thought is like your, your learned behavior. And then what counts is the second thought that you have. And that's the one that corrects that first kind of biased thought. I think that he's a really good representation of having to unlearn biases, like how he, he thinks to himself that it's going to take a lifetime, you know, RAP, uh, to, <laughs> to unlearn all of these, uh, all of these biases that he has. Um, and I think it's an obvious parallel to our own implicit biases. And especially as, you know, white people, we don't get to just decide one day that we're not racist. It's something that we need to work on our entire lives to unlearn and to hold ourselves accountable for these implicit biases that we are indoctrinated with from birth, essentially. And I like that Matthias doesn't, it's not like, oh, I love Nina, so I accept all Grisha now. It's not like that at all. It's, it's something that he knows he has to constantly work on. And yeah. I like that it, that Lee wrote that in, that it's, it's work. You know, yeah. it's never it's never something that's that that easy. Once you decide that you're not going to hate something anymore, that it just doesn't that you just don't hate it anymore. You know, this quote comes from when they're at the ice court in the first book, and he sees uh, some of his brother and the is it Dris Driscoll? 
Sure, Druskella, I think. Druskella, that's what I'm going with. Uh, the, his follow, like, Grisha Hunters. And he sees them and he says, Druskella colors. Matthias had worn them with such pride and the things he'd felt for Nina had caused him so much shame. It was still with him. Maybe it always would be. He'd spent too many years full of hate for it to vanish overnight. But now the shame was an echo and all he felt was regret for the time he had wasted, for the pain he'd caused, and yes, even now for what he was about to do. And that's so, like you said, it's it's that's so realistic. I mean, you can't unlearn these things overnight and it's a, a process of growth and, and development. And he's well on that path when he ultimately dies at the end of the book. And he dies confronted with someone who is just like him, a young boy who is full of the same hate that Matthias was full of. And he's trying to tell this boy that there's another way. And the boy ends up shooting him anyway. <laughs> I told you guys when I read this yesterday, when I finally finished reading this yesterday, that I was like really afraid I was not going to be able to hold it together and not cry about Matthias's death. Because for the reason, again, I agree with you, Justine, on reread, I like had so many Matthias feelings. I think it's knowing what's coming. Yeah. Definitely is really upsetting. But like, God, like in his last thoughts are of Nina and like he struggles to go back to her because he just wants to see her one more time. I just. <laughs> that's where we should have taken a screen grab right there <laughs> I'm just uh, I like I know I think this is another point where we all like paused because I didn't want to read it I knew it was coming and I was like no 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 and but it, again it's another like lovely full full circle moment we first meet Matthias when he's in prison and they have to like bust him out of prison at the beginning he's there because Nina I essentially put him there for reasons that are explored in the book, but he is like in this fighting ring and he has to fight these wolves, which are a very deep connection for the Fjordans and for the Druskel. And he um, is horrified by the fact that he has to kill them. But then his like last chapter, which is just like a paragraph of him thinking about like the wolves howling and welcoming home is, is just really well done. Um, so again, pouring out for Matthias. He's so good. His journey in the book, it's, is so great. And I think it kind of ties into, into this idea again, that's overarching for the, for this book series in general, or this duology in general is the idea of of found families and how all of these characters have been thrown together for various reasons. They come from very different places, but they end up uh, really finding this connection to each other, which is really valuable. And we find that in, Matthias in his his acceptance of how like at the beginning he's horrified by all these people and the crimes that they're committing um and then by the second book he's he's really connecting with with them and is is in on some of the kind of questionable things they decide to do and it's it's really nice to see I think there's (laughs) some really good quotes that sum up that flip in Matthias? Yes. Yeah, so in the first book, um, one of the when they all get the gang together, the first scene, um, Kaz leaned back and he says, What's the easiest way to steal a man's wallet? Knife to the throat, asked Inej. Gun to the back, said Jasper. Poison in his cup, suggested Nina. You're all horrible, said Matthias. Kaz rolled his eyes. The easiest way to steal a man's wallet is to tell him you're going to steal his watch. Um, and it's just such like emblematic of each of the characters, their personality in just one sentence. <laughs> and of course, Inej would use the knives, Jasper would use the gun, Nina would use poison, and Matthias would just be like, you're all awful. Um, <laughs> but then later, yeah, in the second book, 
Um, Kaz says, where do you think the money went? He repeated. Guns, asked Jesper. Ships, queried an edge. Bombs, suggested Wyland. Political bribes, offered Nina. They all looked at Matthias. This is where you tell us how awful we are, she whispered. He shrugged. They all seem like practical choices. <laughs> uh, and it really just represents the changes that Matthias goes through in the course and of growth. these two yeah. <laughs> yeah. Is it growth or is it like a, 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 a moral decline? Yeah, we don't know. Uh, but no, he he his respect for all of them just really comes through. The more you read of his perspective, you know, he there's a lot of like not just backwards stuff about Grisha, but like women in Puritan culture are not very proactive. They're just meant to be like homemakers. It's actually like, I think it's really endearing though when like they have to go undercover and Nina has to wear traditional like Puritan woman dress and he's like so into her in this like frumpy sweater. <laughs> um, but then he, you know, he, he talks about how it's like not just that Nina's a Grisha, but sh- she's like a, a warrior. She's part of the second army in Rough because that's not something he's used to. And he t- thinks about how he has this great respect for Inej and when she's gone, when she's gone missing and she's been kidnapped and how he just really appreciates how she nearly died to save them in the first book. And it, he just, I he think Inej is like so the much. first one he likes on the oh, whole yeah. team. And that's just, I feel like the easiest to like, she's just so good. She's so nice to everyone. She's kind of unassuming I think if I had to pick one friend, I would want Inesh to be my friend out of these of these this crew. But ultimately, a lot of his journey in this book is centered around Nina. So we should talk about her next. I, you talked about this earlier, Teja, about like how there's this this trope of you know the, a woman making like a man into a better person. It doesn't. It's kind of what happens here, but it doesn't bother me because yeah. they are. It's easy to say that you're going to like overcome your internal biases and prejudice. But for a lot of people, how are you ever going to do that if you don't ever meet someone that challenges that for you? And I think that that is what is at the center of of their relationship. Yeah. And I think it's that she she makes him better by just existing near him. She doesn't take him on like a project. She just pushes back on all of his terrible assumptions and prejudices and makes all him All of think. them too. Yeah. yeah. Like yeah. He, he, the reason that Matthias hates Grisha is the inferior burned down his village. It's like, it's like, yeah, like this culture hates Grisha, which is bad. Uh, but mm-hmm. they also destroyed his family. So he really does have personal reasons to, to dislike Grisha. But then at the, um, I think it's in the second book when he has to work with Kawhi and Jasper to save them um, and get them off this, this island that they're trapped on. And he basically uses them in their power, including Kwai's inferior power, right? Inferior, whatever, you know, yeah. power <laughs> to get off and to save them. And Jesper says to him, you realize that you just led a Grisha army <laughs> and Matthias has to like stop himself. And he like sits there and he realizes that, yeah, like here's this person that has the exact same power that destroyed his family and killed his family. And he was just leading them. And it's so it, it, like Nina does help him, but Matthias also puts in the work yeah. and it's these, it's the people that he surrounds himself with at this point too. Yeah. Yeah. And I do think too, what's great about, about Nina and her influence on Matthias, it's like he's obviously like very into her and he like struggles with his like attraction to her and what that means. But you're right, Tasia, it's it's she challenges him in his perspective. She is not quiet in any way, shape, or form. She's very confident. At one point he says to Inej, um, Nina is everything you say, it's too much. Mm, Inej murmured, taking a sip from her mug, maybe you're not enough. I love that. That's such a great like sipping the tea moment. Like I know. Mm. 
Maybe you're just not enough. I love it. This is why we want to be Nina's just friend. She has great moments like that. But it's true. Nina is so many different things. She's confident. She's exuberant. She is has a strong moral compass and knows what's right from wrong. She, you know, what in the second book is very concerned about getting Grisha out of of Catterdam. She you knows she is all of these things. And I think towards the end of Crooked Kingdom, even though it doesn't work out for our, our boy Matthias, he is on that journey to being more, he's on the journey to being enough. So I think in addition to talking, obviously, about Nina and her effect on Matthias and their relationship, we had to talk about just Nina herself and how great she is. It's really interesting, though, like we all love Nina a lot. And I think we've all kind of talked about this, how I don't have as many like notes about her. Her journey in this book is a little different than the rest of them in that she doesn't have like some big thing that she's trying to overcome from the beginning. Obviously, she takes the param and that is something that she has to battle with, but her her background is is not as traumatic as some of the other characters and it just kind of makes her a little I don't want to say that there's not as much depth to her because there is. I feel like I know her very well, but just her confidence is so great. And we we talked about that in terms of like Matthias thinking about how confident she is and how she's just everything. And it's great to see. But then I feel like I feel bad like not talking about her more. I don't know what you guys think. It's funny to like think about that in terms of like characters that have background trauma because she was like a literal child soldier. So, right. <laughs> but like in comparison to everybody else, like her trauma is minimal, which is just, you know, a testament to uh, how truly fucked up everybody is in these books. Right. Yes. I mean, she, she's taught from a young age that she has this great ability and that she needs to use that ability to serve Ravka. And she's totally capable of doing so i mean she definitely has a strong command of her powers so she's a a heart render right Uh, but and that's technically different than a healer but she acts as a healer through a lot of the first book and saves a lot of people she saves an edge um after she's stabbed in the first book so she definitely has the skills it's not like she is you know talking a good game but like can't actually play like she is a really powerful grisha but i think what is even more compelling about her generally is is not just her power and we'll we'll talk about like the changes to her power after she goes through the whole ordeal with the param but just who she is as a person is just so incredibly compelling and is just she's so fun she's like i think her and jesper are probably the biggest like injections of levity into this crew um the two of them together but then just seeing how confident she is and how she's depicted in this book is really cool too. Nina is also our biggest tie to the trilogy, um, which is something that I didn't, I wasn't really cognizant of until I had read these books after having read the trilogy. And so I think the trilogy, you know, introduces Grisha and, and the politics and the second army, but they also, there's all the most delightful Easter eggs pretty much are from Nina's perspective. Like we t- she talks about, you know, working with Zoya and uh, work in the famous Taylor Genia. And uh, and so it's sort of a delight to be in her POV for a number of reasons. But one of them is also uh, getting those Easter egg callbacks to the original trilogy. Yeah, 
that is is really fun. It's funny to see her like hero worship of these characters that we saw kind of not be heroes, but obviously a couple of years later they're being venerated in that way. I mean, she talks a lot about Zoya and how like she was you know basically so honored to like train under her, and we get when then we see those people in Cricket Kingdom to see that interplay is just so fascinating and fun. I totally agree. I think for me, I think one of the best things about Nina too is how she's physically described in this book as being just, she's so flirty. She's so fun. She captures people. She, she does more, I think almost in the way of like her, just her personality and her confidence versus her Grisha power and a lot of the heists. I mean, she's constantly downing disguises and, and getting people to do what she wants, but it's, she's not what we would say is like quote unquote, typically, beautiful in in literature terms because she is described as curvier as a, not, not a twig in any way shape or form that's so different than what we get in a lot of of any any literature honestly I really love that depiction of her because it's never a question of like oh this person is beautiful even though she's big it's never described in that way it's always oh this this woman is big, but she's also like the hottest character in the books. Like everyone describes her as just kind of, she's just a universal beauty. Everybody considers her hot and it's never a matter of, of her size. It's never brought up as like a detriment or like any kind of negative. And I also think too, a lot of times in, in stories we get, you know, depiction, I think like a lot of times when you do have like a, character who's more full figured there's a lot of times like a confidence issue that they try to like minimize themselves because their physical body is taking up more space and that's like an internal thing that they have to deal with but it's like almost the complete opposite for Nina because despite being physically larger she's able to blend in so many more places because she just is able to take on whatever persona she wants to take on and it's just such a refreshing depiction to see for sure and so then I think one of the, I guess the biggest struggle that Nina has in this book, other than like her relationship with Matthias, which we've talked about already, but is the fact that she takes the param at the end of Six of Crows to save everyone and it's total badass and does save everyone. Uh, but then she immediately is, has to deal with the addictive issues that come with param and seeing that, depiction then in Kirk Kingdom of her like being in withdrawal and how like awful she is to everyone is it's really interesting to see it in I guess in like a positive way like it's someone you like seeing the negative effects of drug use but it like she took it for a positive reason and did good with it so it's just it's kind of like it seems like a weird disconnect to me a little bit about it's like what are exactly was Lee trying to say with it that like, even if there are good things, like the, the bad outweighs, like, I don't know how I feel about like how that was wrapped up in the end. Cause it, like affects her powers and it changes her powers too. So I guess I'm like, what is the moral of Nina's story? I mean, maybe there isn't deal. one. Yeah. Because yeah, you make a really interesting point because it was, something completely necessary. If she hadn't done that, they would have all died. But also because she did that, 
she has this horrible addiction she has to struggle with. Her powers are completely changed, like like a coin flip, you know, where on the one side she controlled life and now on the other side she controls death. Yeah. And um, and also at the end, she's unable to save Matthias because she doesn't have that that life force power anymore. Yeah. So it has like far, far reaching consequences. Yeah. And I guess it kind of does play into Nate. I'm I will. I think I'm stealing this thought from you, Jesse, because you said it to me earlier. But like the idea of like power and like what embracing the power means and like, you know, with great power comes great responsibility. Like she was able to like do something extraordinary and there was great cost to it in a lot of different ways. I wonder also if this sort of ties into like, we know that the Grisha are sorted into these sort of categories of power, but at the same time, we've also seen people like in the original trilogy, we saw Alina with the sun summoner power that no one else had. And then we also have the darkling whose power sort of manifests because he corrupts his original power. And so I wonder if like what we're seeing with the parent and what we're seeing with Nina is sort of a natural progression of the Grisha power because we don't really know much about it. They call it a science. They call it being a saint. Um, I mean, it's not really explored in this book and and maybe it will be explored a little bit more in the duology, the King of Scars duology afterwards, but we don't really know that much about Grisha power. And so to see it sort of quote unquote corrupted like this, I mean, we don't really, it might just be another extension, another evolution of Grisha power that we just like don't really know yet. So, yeah, and that's a really good point. And I, you know, we're going to talk about King of Scars next week. And so we'll talk a little bit more about that, but I don't think it's a spoiler at this point when the book's been out for like two years, I think it was hidden before the book came out, but um, everyone knew it was the Nikolai duology, but they did not know that there was going to be Nina POV chapters in that duology. So um, Nina is, her story is not over by any means. So we will get more answers to it, but she does have a nice kind of wrap up with a bow moment here where she it's, it's so badass when she like creates this whole plague like it I remember the first time I read that I was like this is so cool and like so just evil and like scary but like she's not hurting anyone so it's like a really good use of this power that she kind of sees as perverse and she talks about how like for the first time since she took the prem she feels strong and her breathing has come easy and she's actually hungry again um we love a girl who loves to eat uh that's a running theme throughout this she's like, girlfriend loves waffles i love waffles i feel it so she's like returning to the the end and i literally almost bought a waffle maker the other day because <laughs> i'd spent the last two weeks just reading all of these books and just obsessing over waffles so thanks yeah, a lot they talk about waffles and so much significant so much. yeah and then that's when you know like she really loves him when she tells him that he's better than waffles We'll, we'll talk more about that earlier. <laughs> um, I think yeah. my favorite Nina moment is um, at the silos. And she thinks she and Inez are just completely fucked. And then she summons from like the nearby like barge of dead people, just an entire army of corpses. And it is completely badass and completely disgusting. And a uh, good yeah. moment for her. It's, it's Yeah, she has really, really good moments. So, yeah. Again, even though I guess prize for you, and you know, you don't have as much like trauma for us to delve into here, but you definitely go through some things. Her journey is not over, and you know, we'll talk about that when we get to King of Scars next. But she's she's just great, and her and Inez's just friendship is is really great to see too. They are probably the most like 
even keeled and like level-headed of, of this crew. a lot of what the shadow and bone trilogy was missing like there was no i mean like she was friends alina was friends with jenya but it was a relationship based on kind of a power differential like alina was so far above everybody else just as like the sun summoner and as this like sainted figure but um Inezhin and uh, nina are on the same you know even ground and their friendship is just so good and not based on anybody's power or ulterior motives or anything. It's just really nice to see. And I think that's something that was really missing from Shadow and Bone. I was just looking at my notes and I only have one quote from Nina's perspective. And it's about like the friendship. One of the sort of categories that I slotted a lot of my quotes into was uh, found families, which is sort of a theme that we've been talking about and how this little group of misfits and outsiders becomes this family. And every one of their POVs has some sort of quote where they look around and sort of like have this moment of clarity where they're like, wow, like somehow along the line, these people became my friends. These people became my family. And Nina's is one of my favorite versions of that. Um, At the end, she thanks them for saving her. And and they're like, what are you talking about? Like, we didn't really do that for you. And she says, no, I mean, the little rescues, laughing at my jokes, forgiving me when I was foolish, never trying to make me feel small. It doesn't matter if it's next month or next year or 10 years from now. Those will be the things I remember when I see you again. And they just went through these like huge huge heist and they, they broke into the ice like court. like Corinne's face right now. <laughs> <laughs> she's just, oh, wow. she's barely holding it together. She was just hanging on by a thread. I like picture that scene so vividly in my mind when they're about to like throw away with Matthias's body. And like that was that was the plan for them to pretend to be dead. But one of them is actually dead. And it does not care. Corinne's out here wearing her heart on her sleeve. Oh it's my so God. Oh, I know you're sorry, but no, no, but it's yeah, that's I that's beautiful. It's funny because one of the quotes that I was just gonna read was like from the beginning when Nina uh, saves Inej on the ship and she says something to Inej. It's so much easier to kill people than to take care of them. And then they burst out laughing. <laughs> it's like they're, they all come together because of, of these like horrible backgrounds that they come from one way or the other. I mean, we didn't talk about it too much, but like Nina was kidnapped and thought she was going to die at the hands of the Druskella. And then thinks she's gonna die in a shipwreck so she like definitely goes through some things i don't mean to like discount that in any way but they all come together and they're all just so these these, like lost children and then when they meet like jesper's dad they nina has another pov moment there where she's thinking about how they all came from these like very sad places she says she was someone in the city would help them that they weren't so alone she wished jesper's father could take them all with him she'd never been to no but the longing for those golden fields felt just like homesickness. Silly, she told herself, childish. Kaz was right. If they wanted justice, they would have to take it for themselves. That didn't ease the starved heart pain in her chest. And so it's nice to see them at the end, despite this horrific loss of Matthias, like they do, they've moved past that to really like bond and on a deeper level other than just like shared trauma. So that's really, really lovely to see. And I think then I think the next logical point we just talked about his dad is to talk about Jasper, who, again, I feel like I don't, he has a lot going on. And I feel like, I don't know if you guys feel this way too. I feel like I have the least strong grasp on his character and like where he went in this book. Like he definitely has some characteristics of 
like a, a attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. He, he can't concentrate on things. And there's a, a big passage where he's talking about how he went to school. He couldn't concentrate on, even though he liked reading, he liked learning things. He liked hearing stories. He couldn't concentrate in the way that a lot of the, the other students did. And it, that then manifests itself in like, where where does that come from? Does it come from his repressed Grisha powers? Is that related to him? He has these issues with his dad telling him to repress his Grisha powers. I I wasn't like sure. And then he's like a gambling addict. I wasn't sure how that all like fit together into Jasper. Love him. I think the gambling addiction for sure has something to do with his repressed powers because at some point, um, God, who is it that says it? That says uh, there's you know different all kinds of different illnesses. Like he he's not suffering in the same way like Alina was before she started using her power in Shadow and Bone. But he is he does have illnesses. Like he's got an, a crippling addiction to gambling. Um, he does have like some sort of ADHD, like you said, type of thing. Um, uh, just high, high, high energy, but also like low crashes mm-hmm. so there, there's like a manic thing going on with him i think a lot of that can tie back to the repressing of his grisha things but i think a lot of it too it could just be you know he's described as like a high energy child as well and that was before he was repressing anything right yeah so i mean it definitely is like validating to see that here i mean he's a very valuable member of the crew i think Teja, you sent us the moment when he like warps the bullet around the corner to like try to like fake Kuei's death at the end is like a stand up and cheer moment it's so good so like it, it's great to see like someone who is not as typical like, has a spot in in a role i mean and the the gambling thing is again it's really interesting because you just don't it's weird to think of a kid having those issues, but these kids are not kids in a lot of ways. Uh, but it's nice how he ends up finding in in Wyland someone who can like help guide him through that and channel that into some like positive things, like playing the mar- like stock market versus or investments versus like throwing it away in like gambling halls. Um, but for me, I think the I like how he plays into like the overarching theme that we've discussed already, which is like the idea of forgiveness here and how like he relates to Kaz in in that way and how in a lot of ways he's kind of like a stand-in for Kaz's brother, who Kaz definitely has some forgiveness problems with and is is struggling to deal with that. I think Kaz definitely sees Jesper as similarly irresponsible as Jordy. Because he eventually comes to see after he stops with the hero worshiping of Jordy, um, he, and he gets older, and he sort of realizes that Jordy was sort of foolish, and he came to this town and he wanted to cut corners and get rich quick, and so he was easy to swindle. And Jasper fits a lot of those same behaviors, and so I think Jasper, I mean, uh, Kaz sees a lot of Jordy in Jasper, and maybe punishes him for it more than he might deserve. Yeah. yeah in terms of Jordy, or I did it too. <laughs> just for his, uh, I think his arc is really one of the clearest ones um, because at the end he does sort of address his Grisha power and come to terms with it. And he also comes sort of into, or he decides to do something about his gambling issues. Like 
when he takes when he tells Kaz that he wants his his winning shares in his father's name instead of his own name. And it, it literally Kaz seems almost like proud of him. And I think the line says that, you know, that's the right move, Jess. It was a little bit like forgiveness. And, you know, so Jesper sort of is the reason that they get attacked um, before they really even begin the heist. Like they're on their way even before they leave Ketterdam to go to the ice court, they get jumped and Inej gets stabbed. And the reason is because Jesper was sort of mouthing off about um, going to have this like big score and, um, they were uh, Pekka Rollins's gang, the Dime Lions, was able to figure it out and get the jump on them. And Kaz really sort of just takes it all out on Jesper uh, in a really like heartbreaking way because Jesper also seems to have feelings for Kaz a little bit. And also, you know, Kaz is his boss and, and, and Jesper sort of carries around this like weight of Kaz's judgment on him the whole time and it's really heartbreaking the way he just really wants Kaz to forgive him and then at the end he like sort of he gets that and uh, it's a really rewarding moment for many reasons and then Kaz like at the very end like tells Inej at the docks like tell Jasper he's missed around the slats and she's like around the slats like Okay. But like, I mean, Kaz even says that to him when he accidentally calls Jasper Jordy, like in a, ma- a moment of like anger. Later, Jasper asks, you know, who's Jordy? And he said, someone I trusted, someone I didn't want to lose. And it, I, their f- friendship too is different than like Nina and Inez's. It's not, I mean, Kaz is horribly repressed and does not show like normal feelings towards anyone, as we've already discussed. But it's really nice to see how that like, comes together full circle for them that he is able to kind of get that forgiveness and it i like then too where jasper goes with how he's going to change things going forward he has this great conversation with Inej earlier when they finally get her back from being kidnapped and he wants to apologize to her for the role that he played setting this all up that ultimately led to her getting kidnapped and her getting stabbed at the time too and she tells him about the suli proverb which is instead of saying you're sorry, it's you, you say this action will have no echo, which basically means you're not going to keep making the same mistakes. And she has a great quote where she says, you know, there's a wound in you and the tables, the dice, the cards, they feel like medicine. They soothe you, put you right for a time, but they're poison just for every time you play, you take another sip. You have to find some other way to heal that part of yourself. She laid her hand on his chest. Stop treating your pain. Like it's something you imagined. If you see the wound is real, then you can heal it. And so he goes through all of that and you he eventually gets there but for me I, I still kind of like struggle to see like how does he get there is it because he's finally had this like realization with his dad from Kaz is it because he has Wylan I think it's it, there's probably like a lot of reasons right but for me like yeah I like, like where he ends the things I still just and I like everything that got us there but I don't know like how it lines up exactly quite exactly well if you think about it towards the end of crooked kingdom he's using his grisha power a lot more than he has for yeah. probably you know since he was a child you know because he keeps getting put into situations where he has to use it in order to survive but maybe that in itself like using his power more it's bringing him a little bit of clarity plus i mean he was a member of the dregs like an important member of the dregs and everything but like the the six of them they're such like an insular group and they become so close to each other that he gets so much more of that like friendship and family that he didn't necessarily have before even in the gang so he's got a lot more you know people holding him accountable or people talking to him about those problems 
So I think it's probably just a combination of this and that that's, you know, helping him get there at the end. Yeah. I, that, yeah, that makes sense. In addition to coming to terms with his powers and realizing that they aren't a curse, that they're like a gift and that's something he can use. Um, I think there's also a moment, particularly in Crows, when Jesper looks down at some of the um, the Grisha that are under Param and Param, and he thinks to himself, like, did I just kill some of my kind? Um, and he looks at the the tapestry of captives that the Fjordans like put together of their like trophies of all the Grisha they've killed. Mm-hmm. And he has this moment where he's like, I'm one of these people they're after me also, like just because I don't wear the colors of Ravka, just because I didn't, I'm not a soldier of the second army. They're still after me, like regardless. And I think that's a really powerful moment for him too. And he, he flirts with the idea of joining the second army and, you know, Nina tries to recruit him to the cause. And I don't know, there's a, there's a lot of stuff about Grishit that I feel like we don't really know that's not really explored, but that there's like the potential to be explored and yeah. all these like Grisha that, didn't want to join up in the second army that didn't want to abandon that their families didn't want to let them go and, and hiding yeah. their powers that way. And- I, again, I don't want to like go too far into like King of Scars territory. However, I do wonder based on how the, this book ends and tells Kaz that, you know, Jasper has agreed to train as a fabricator and told Wyland that he would do that, but they need to find one. So it might mean they go to Ravka. I would not mind seeing more and like seeing how some of those things shake out for him. I don't know if we will, but when I read that this time, I was like, Oh, well, we're in Ravka in another book now. So the door is open there. So that would be really, really interesting. Um, Side note. I really am interested in like the TV show. If they are going to have Jasper's like ridiculous fashion be (laughs) a part of his character. It was like lime green pants and like, weird patterned vest. I was just going to say I need to see that lime green suit. The thing that he's got. Yeah. And at one point, Jesse, you said he like he flirts with like being, I don't know, he said flirts with being like Grisha or something. I thought you were just going to say and like and he flirts. And I was like, oh, he does. <laughs> he <laughs> definitely does. He, he and Nina have I was going to say he and lot. Nina are a deadly yeah. combination. Yeah, for sure. And he turns a lot of his charms into our sixth member of the crew. Sweet Wyland Van Eck, who we don't get his POV in Six of Crows, and then we do get more of him in Crooked Kingdom. And I think he's like the only one that we're kind of like divided on. Friend is Van Wyland feelings. Yeah. I think he's a sweet little cinnamon roll. His story is like very upsetting to me in a lot of ways because I just I don't understand. I have a hard time understanding just like parental cruelty like that. It's just his dad is so awful. The things he does, I'm sending those letters that he knows he can't read, hiring like hitmen to kill him, thinking like having no qualms about blowing up the boat at the end of Six of Crows and knowing that his son or thinking his son's on it. It's just like it's 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 really upsetting to me. He has dyslexia. He can't read at all. And to see that he have a character that like shows that he has so much worth beyond that. He's so smart. He has this penchant for explosives. He's a valuable member of the crew at the end. I think that's like a very satisfying depiction for me and a very satisfying arc. Tasia. (laughs) (laughs) Current space. Um, Yeah. I, I end up liking Wyland just fine, especially at the end. I think he really comes into his own and it takes a lot of work to get there because 
as horrible as his father has been to him, there's still a part of him, even until almost the end, that wants his father's approval and wants his father to take him back and to love him, which, of course, is totally natural. But um, my issue with Wylan, especially in the beginning, um, is I feel like he's really sanctimonious about the criminal activity. Like, he he escaped his father's hitmen, and he went to Ketterdam would have been killed or robbed or worse um, at some point if he had not been put under the protection of the dregs and was hired on to, you know, be a, the explosives guy for the gang. And yet he still continues to like hem and haw over the, the criminal element. Like, Oh, we shouldn't do this. This is bad. Okay. And like, I think Inej does a much more nuanced job of pushing back against some of that, the more morally uh, grade behavior, because I think Wyland does it from a very privileged place. He has not had to, I mean, despite his very, very obviously terrible upbringing with his very abusive father, until he left, he never had to lift a finger to do anything yeah. in his entire life. He'd never been to the barrel. He, He'd only ever yeah, heard about it. He was completely unaware of the, the inherent criminality of the merchant class and the classism and what it does to the people in poverty in that community. So when he goes there and he joins them and then he, you know, is sanctimonious to them about what they've had to do and who they have had to become just to survive. I just don't like it. I don't like it coming from him and I don't like the way he does it. And it, it almost costs them cons a few times. Yeah. I mean, he's obviously very privileged. I don't disagree with that. I just, it doesn't bother me. Like it, to me, the first time I read this book, I was way more bothered by Matthias just because like religious fervor makes me very uncomfortable. And I am probably like a naive little person like Wyland is really probably like, I don't, I could see a younger version of me relating to Wyland in a lot of ways, like in his naivety and a lot of things. But I do like though that i mean he does like acknowledge it at one point especially after he finds like that his mom is alive and being like kept from him and his dad lied and said she's dead it's like horrible um but he starts thinking to himself you know he had gone to the ice court reluctantly he had aided kaz grudgingly because through it all he believed that he deserved his father's contempt and now he could admit that somewhere in some buried place he'd hoped there might still be a way back to his father's good graces well his father could keep that good favor and see what it brought him when kaz brecker was finished so like I, I like that he kind of does acknowledge that and starts to move on from it. And for some reason, like his comeuppance on his dad is like way more satisfying to me than like even Kaz getting one over and Pekka at the end. Like it's just it's such a good moment of triumph. And I also have very soft feelings about like Kaz taking him under his wing. Like obviously Kaz gives an as the ship. And like it's her parents because he's like in love with her, but to like take someone like Wylan and put transfer all the funds and everything of his dad's into his name is just like really soft friendship behavior from Kaz, and it just makes me really happy <laughs> because he didn't have to do that. Like he doesn't have a motive to to do that. There's nothing that he gets out of that. Um, so I like how that kind of interplays together with them. 
The thing that contextualized Wylan and Wylan's story in the book that made me actually like the character is the meme, this meme that Corinne sent us of this like adult crow with like a knife in its beak and like a <laughs> baby crow, with, like a little knife in its beak. And like the caption was like, Kaz is the big crow and uh, Wylan is the baby crow. And it sort of just like was sort of an aha moment for me, like about Wylan and in his arc in the, in both books. <laughs> Yeah, uh, <laughs> it's like murder crow adopts baby crow. Yeah. <laughs> it's like these true crows with knives. I'll post it on our our social. Um, but I, and I have um like uh the found families quote or whatever. The one that I have from Wyland is Wyland summoned every bit of bravado he learned from Nina, the will he learned from Matthias, the focus he'd studied in Kaz, the courage he learned from Edge, and the wild reckless hope he learned from Jasper. The belief that no matter the odds, somehow they would win. And I love that a, quote. And it's he's great. just like sitting there, like taking it all in. And then at the end, he's just like taking all of their best qualities together and, and, and he's able to do what, what he needs to do. And, um, it, and just the meme really works for me in terms of <laughs> I think I mean, Wyland ends up in a really great place where I do completely love him, but I think it just does take a lot of growing up on his part to kind of stop seeing, you know, the other crows as, um, these just like morally bank, you know, yeah, they are morally bankrupt, but also look what they've had to endure in order just to survive, you know? So he does, he does grow up a lot and he gets to a place where I can really, really appreciate him as a character. And I do think that his comeuppance against his father is one of the most satisfying moments in the book, like where he recites that the paperwork and pretends to read and makes his father just look like the biggest D bag on the planet. It's great. And then Jasper like goes up and whispers to his dad, like, I'll read for him. I'm like, yeah. yes, yeah. I love it. I love it so much. Um, and I guess this will probably be like a good transition into some of our superlatives here in a minute before we like wrap up on just kind of overall themes we love about this book. But I know exactly like what moment you're talking about when you like his his naivety sometimes gets in the way of cons and th- what they're trying to do. And I agree with that. I love the moment when at the beginning of Crooked Kingdom, he is pretending to be a waiter and Jasper is trying to keep Vanek's lawyer at the table and he's gambling. He puts up his guns and Wyland like screams out no. And I just love that because he's so soft for for Jasper. And you don't re- you get that in Six of Crows, but you don't have his POV. So you like don't know. Although at one point he like not so subtly asked Jasper about like and like not just girls, right? Like <laughs> he's just so precious about it. But I, so I like that moment because he can't help that himself. moment made me mad. I know, I know. It, <laughs> it made me so mad because, like, I was like, if you just stop and like use your brain for half a second, and you think like, oh, we're obviously going to get these back. Like that is just obvious. But they can Jasper pick didn't any... even know that. <laughs> but I mean, like, just just think like for like half a second, guys. Both of you, both of I you, know. like. Okay. I mean, both of you isn't Jasper and Wyland. Like both of them need to just. <laughs> I mean, I feel like Jesper put them up to probably knowing, like maybe not being 100% sure that he'll get them back. But like he said to Kaz, even on in the most cynical of outlooks, what is a sharpshooter without his guns, right? So Kaz has all the motive in the world to get those guns back. So I just want him to use a little bit of logic, just a little bit. High pressure situation. And now she's been kidnapped. Nina is strung out on the parab. And <laughs> Wyland doesn't look like Wyland anymore. It looks like Kuwait. So things are happening. They're under a lot of stress. Okay? <laughs> I think we're establishing that 
<laughs> you're much softer for uh for, for softness than I am. Yeah, but that's totally it's fine. Hard. It's so rare that we disagree that we have to highlight it, is. it when we do when we ultimately end up loving the character. Well, it's yeah, well, it's fun. It's it fun to disagree fun. sometimes. It is fun. Well, let's then start with our superlatives, and we will talk about first our favorite quotes, which is quite lengthy here. Um, Tasia, why don't you go first? Because I think yours probably is my favorite quote and the one I think about most when I think about the series. Yeah. So I just, I just put down one quote because obviously these books are filled with so many as uh, Corinne and Jesse will, <laughs> will highlight in just a moment. This one sticks with me the most. I think um, if I were to get something from this book tattooed on me, which I might, it will be this quote, which is no mourners, no funerals. And then it continues to say uh, among them, it passed for good luck. Yeah. And I think, man, what a, what a great like tagline for your gang. It's, it's good. Yeah, it is a really good one. I like it a lot. Um, I think it said mine earlier, but I really love when at the end of Six of Crows, Inez says to Kaz, I will have you without armor, Kaz Brecker. I will not have you at all. It just goes to exactly who Inez is and why she has, um, for me, is, is such a valuable character and why I love her so much because her own self-worth is so important to her, even as she's struggling to deal with what she's had to do and what she's been through and what that means for her going forward. She still knows that she deserves better than what Kaz can offer her at that time. And I, it's rare for me and we'll, we'll talk about ships here in a minute, but like, I, I have a hard time, even though if I know it's like a romance novel and there's obstacles being thrown in a couple's way, I have a hard time getting through them, even though I know like it's going to be happier. But I, I remember reading that and being like, normally I wouldn't like this because it'd be like, okay, just like, he he wants you to stay, just like be with him. But the fact that she takes that position with him is is really powerful, and I like it. Jesse, oh. so my my main favorite quote was the one that we already sort of discussed. The what's the easiest way to steal a man's wallet? But um, I do want to read this one quote because I I kind of think it's like the thesis statement for these books. Janyasha really believed she was the landstop heir, and maybe she was, but wasn't that what every girl dreamed? That she'd wake up and find herself a princess, or blessed with magical powers and a grand destiny. Maybe there were people who lived those lives. Maybe this girl was one of them, but what about the rest of us? What about the nobodies and the nothings, the invisible girls? We learned to hold our heads as if we wear crowns. We learned to wring magic from the ordinary. That was how you survived when you weren't chosen, when there was no royal blood in your veins. When the world owed you nothing, you demanded something of it anyway. And it's such a fantastic quote because because I kind of read it almost as a commentary on the original trilogy, right? Because the trilogy is very standard. I don't mean this in a bad way, but it's standard fare. Like we talked about this, like girl is ordinary. And then one day she wakes up and she has magical powers. She's potentially going to be betrothed to the, the handsome uh, prince. And she's living this great life. I mean, obviously we know Alina struggled and everything that goes on in the trilogy, but essentially that's what the story is. And she saves the day. Um, but this duology, and I think this is what makes it rise above in, in my estimation of the books that I've read this year and probably in general in YA fiction. It's just that Inej is right in this quote, like, what about the nobodies? What about the people that don't wake up one day and aren't the princesses and, and don't wake up with magical powers? Instead, they have to find their crowns in the ordinary moments. They have to train and prepare and 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 find those found families that you know don't drop into their lap and and i i don't know i think it's i've i I consider it sort of the thesis statement of of these books and why i like them so much and 
I, I just, I think it's a really good quote to summarize. It's a beautiful quote. Yeah, that's mm-hmm. great. It's great. And then she gets her nice moment of, of triumph then over Dunyasha. And yeah, it, it, it's a great moment. And it, it is so true that like this ragtag crew who like in society too are like the bottom of the barrel, literally. It's called barrel. Wait, is that why it's called? <laughs> I think I literally just saw a light, like a cartoon light bulb <laughs> pop over your head. <laughs> Whoa. No, I hadn't thought of that either, but yeah. that, that makes I'm a lot of sense. Going with it. I'll text Lee. <laughs> Lee, I figured it out. <laughs> oh, gosh. Okay. <laughs> Uh, favorite character and favorite character arc. Do we all have the same favorite character? I might not, <gasps> actually. Um, and I'll tell you right now. So I guess I'll just go first. Um, I'll tell you right now, Kaz and Inej are so close. So close for me that it's like, I didn't decide until literally like maybe 30 seconds ago that I was going to pick Inej. Part of it good, is, is good choice. <laughs> part of it is the the quote that you just read. And also I'm just thinking about like, as you were talking about Corinne, the way she pushes back against Kaz, you know, because he's not good for her in that moment and he needs to better himself before they can, you know, walk forward together. And I just think sure. she's, she's an incredible role model. She, uh, She's so highly competent and just has an amazing skill set. She's such a badass. I I adore Inej. And I do, I mean, Kaz is my book boyfriend of this book. Sure. But I mean, Inej is my book girlfriend. So there we okay. go. I'm gonna go with her. Yeah. I mean, this is for me, it's like, you know, I split the baby here and picked. <laughs> Yeah, uh, Kaz is my favorite character, and and that's just my favorite character arc. I, I guess we'll just like kind of talk about these like in whole. I mean, I totally everything you said about like and why she's a favorite character. It's why she's my favorite character arc. I think she just has so many beautiful, strong moments, and I really love how then at the end, despite and I guess because of how she positions herself to Kaz and how she knows her own self worth, up until the very end, she's not convinced that Kaz is ever going to change. Um, but then he he does this wonderful thing in giving her the ship and bringing his parents. And she just kind of says, had she really thought the world didn't change, she was a fool. The world was made of miracles, unexpected earthquakes, storms that came from nowhere and might reshape a continent. The boy beside her, the future before her, anything was possible. It's incredible stuff. So I guess that's for me why she's favorite character arc. Jesse, do you have... Do you have a different one for character arc? I do have a different one for character arc, which is surprising. Kaz is my favorite character. I mean, for all the reasons that we've talked about. I mean, he's the one person that I think about, the character that I think about when I think about this book. Like, when I look at fan art, I look for Kaz's face. Like, he, you know, and I think- He's the icon. Yeah. Yeah. He's my book boyfriend. Like, my book boyfriend. Like, I I love him. Um, but surprisingly, and this shocked me when I started like filling in the blanks for this, but my favorite character arc is Matthias. And, and he was my least favorite character by far in the first book. And maybe he still is. I mean, they're all my children, but he's maybe <laughs> um, my least favorite, I guess. Um, but I just like, as I was rereading for the second time, I was overwhelmed by, you know, how he goes from trying to strangle Nina and being in this prison to basically declaring 
to leading his own Grisha army and declaring, you know, his love and devotion for her and repeating that oath, like that oath, the Driscoll oath to Nina instead of, you know, this country that, you know, raised him when he was orphaned. And it's just to go from having his family destroyed because of the Grisha to fighting alongside them, to leading them, to falling in love with one, to, to even when he's been shot by a young boy that he sees himself in, to thinking that he, you know, wanted to help him and begging Nina on his deathbed, you know, to, you know, help these people. And I just, I, I love it so much. And I don't know, there's just so many quotes here that I do, I have, and they're all basically the same of him just coming to realize, you know, who's, who, what is unnatural? You know, like Nina used these powers to save him. And, you know, who's to say, who is he to say like what's natural and what's not? And he, he goes on this journey and, and we already sort of talked about it, but um, it's just so funny to me how in this reread, if you had told me when I originally read this, that I would be on a podcast advocating for Matthias's journey in arc is the best one in the series. I would have laughed in your face, but um, for me, it really is. I just kept seeing evidence and evidence pile on and I know he dies, but it's just uh, the, the journey he goes on, I think is just yeah. so that was I like completely a, agree. That was like a beautiful um, eulogy for him. It was. <laughs> it was. It was so nice. I literally just read, um, I just started reading King of Scars for this podcast, for you guys' podcast to listen to. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just got into Matthias's funeral. So there you go. Spoiler alert. Or whatever, yeah. but, <laughs> it's heartbreaking stuff. So um, yeah, I completely agree. He's my, he's my choice for Ark as well. And also, I mean, and the first time I read this, especially, I, I hated Matthias until, you know, that revelation or whatever that he has. But yeah. on reread, his arc is so much more rewarding because you see, like, you get to really enjoy that growth that he has knowing where he ends up um, and appreciate his his character moments so much more on reread. Yeah. I have a lot of appreciation for him, too, on reread because since that time I have read another YA series that has a very similar conceit between the the main two love interests, which I think both of you have read. Again, I don't want to like trash it here, so I'm not going to say it, but it, it does the same thing. It's like the same exact thing. It's not done as well nearly at all. This idea of someone who's like raised in this like prejudicial religious system, like falling in love with the person he's like has to hunt just this it's done so incredibly well here with so much nuance and it's not just because he's in love with Nina that he he makes this journey he this because he's met all of them and he just really starts to see how the world is different and it's it's great rest in peace we love Matthias (laughs) um so let's turn now I think to Oh boy, <laughs> our favorite <laughs> swoon-worthy moments in this series, and I'll say, you know, Kaz is my favorite character because of the dichotomy between everything we've talked about about him already in terms of the trauma he's gone through and how how screwed up he is in a lot of ways, but juxtaposed then with his feelings for Inej just kind of blow me away. It's incredible to me. I'll read. My favorite moment because in our show notes, 
both of you commented that I stole this. I don't know how I stole it just because I have to write it down first. <laughs> so I'll share it for everyone. This is your trial. <laughs> I'm sorry. Because this, I before I even started rereading, I put it in there because I think about it all the time. And I've like saved so many like pieces of fan art of this scene. So it's after um, they save Inej from Van Eck in the beginning of Kirkwood Kingdom. And she has a lot of self-doubt about why Kaz did it because, you know, she he has told her repeatedly that she's an investment of his. And, you know, she says that Van Eck was threatening to like smash her legs with Kane and she would never be able to walk or not nearly be the same after that. And she doubts whether or not he would have come for her and come to save her if if she had been you know, ruined in that way um, from a criminal mastermind perspective. And instead, Kaz says, I would have come for you. And if I couldn't walk, I'd crawl to you. And no matter how broken we were, we'd fight our way out together. Knives drawn, pistols blazing. Because that's what we do. We never stop fighting. Whoa! <laughs> Kaz! That's so good. Best one. It's, it it's, is. It's so good because when he can no longer fight what he feels for her, like it's kind of like a delusion. It's kind of miraculous that he lets it out. Like, I think that's why I feel like everything that when he does say something, like it just makes me melt because he's so, it, it's so unexpected. And he, you, we can read his perspective that he is fighting to say that he doesn't want to say these things. He doesn't want to show her these things. But when he does, oh, it's well, scary, And even man. if that, even if that weren't, like almost out of character for him to like reveal that much of himself, it would still be one of the most absurdly romantic things yeah. I've ever heard in my life. Yeah. Like it is just, where do you go yeah. from there? Right. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's so important too, because Inej has convinced herself before that moment that she's just an investment to him. That the only reason he cares about her is because she's this, the wraith. And so for him to like say that to her is just like, it's shattering the illusion that she's built up in her mind that he would, you know, he doesn't care for her. And so it's just like putting down all the defenses. It's, it's perfect. Yeah. It's really great. <laughs> and then obviously like him getting her, we've talked a lot about her and bringing her the ship at the end mm-hmm. is, is incredible and finding her parents and then how he's like, he's like, should I not have done this? And she's like, no, this is incredible. And then he's like nervous to meet them. He likes my tie straight. Very sweet. It's so soft. Oh. <laughs> Tasha, you have another like a top-notch cats and a nudge. Yeah. Moment listed here. All right. So um yeah, you guys took like the best ones. It's fine. Took I'm not mad. Again. I'm not mad or anything. Corinne took it. <laughs> <laughs> Just Don't learn. Learn. in with her. <laughs> okay. Okay. <laughs> I think that they have like kind of an extremely underrated sexual moment, which you don't get a lot of that in this book because they're both so traumatized and cannot deal with that kind of physical intimacy at all. But they do have this moment where they're in the bathroom and he's rebandaging her arms. And okay. So the barest movement in his lips, brushed her skin, warm, smooth, beaded with moisture. Desire coursed through him. A thousand images he'd hoarded, barely let himself imagine. The fall of her dark hair freed from its braid. His hand fitted to the lithe curve of her waist. Her lips parted, whispering his name. And it's kind of like, like what just happened? Like yes. he kisses her neck and it is like, <laughs> like, what the fuck? It's really sexy. It's 
just really good. And then immediately, like they kind of separate from each other because they're both getting like, ah, no touchy, yeah. but it's a really nice moment. And then another one that I have that I think is a really nice underrated moment is when uh pair Haskell is demanding that because he is technically the, the leader of the dregs. So he's demanding that the wraith comes back to him for his service. And um, he says, this is my gang Brecker. She doesn't belong to you. And Kaz answers, she doesn't belong to anyone. And I really love that. Yeah. So he knows good. He knows his girl. Ugh. So good. It's funny that you're here again, Jesse, for this, because you were here for the Scorpio races. And we talked a lot about how like less is more in that book. And there's not a lot of kissing. And all we get is like a quick shoulder kiss here and then like hand holding. And I've never been so satisfied by a ship like, <laughs> in my life. Like, oh my gosh. Like it's so oh, that hand holding at the end is, is very satisfying to like, it's just, it's perfect. I see on Tumblr people like we want to kiss in the show. I'm like, you have a fundamental misunderstanding of these characters. Yeah. Yeah. We, you know, I, I think Corinne and I, you and I have had conversations before on what draws us to seek out fan fiction for a particular ship. Like, why do we pick certain ones over others? And there's just so many series that I'd love to read more about, but I just don't. I don't even seek it out. And for me, Six of Crows and Kazan and Edge is one of those ships where I don't really want to read fan fiction about it. Um, I just... As like fun as it would be to read like a sexy romp between Kaz and Ed, it's just not in their characters. And I think it would feel false. I mean, I have found like good fix that they do exist um, that take the time to work through their trauma and don't rush everything. Um, but it's just something that I, I'm just fine leaving it like kind of how it is on the page and in my mind. And, you know, in, you know, if you, if you want to know, do I think that, they overcome their issues and together and, you know, sort of sail off into the sunset. You would, I would say yes. Yeah, uh, yeah. But We've come to a very giggly place. <laughs> can you, mm-hmm. can you read this part? You have two, since again, I stole the best lines. You have a lot of really good runners up here. Can you uh, read the one about what Nina senses from Kaz when she's on the param. So this is a very underrated moment, I think, Um, but I just love it so much. Um, So Nina is under the influence of the param and her powers are heightened. And she says to Inej, I wish you could see what I do. I can see what everybody on the ship, the blood rushing through their veins. I can hear the change in Kaz's breathing when he looks at you. You, you can, it catches every time. Like he's never seen you before. Oh, I just got chills. I, like, I, I asked you to read it. <laughs> I, like, you can control what your characters say out loud in terms of like, I like you. I want to be with you. I find you attractive. Um, kissing, hand-holding, that kind of stuff. But, you, but to capture this internal love, like you, you can't, it's just so special, I think. Yeah, it's so good. It's okay. we, we could talk about this for days. We could literally <laughs> just sit here and read these entire books into the podcast for you, but we won't. I guess we can move on. I do want to highlight some other hi- uh, moments from our other pairs in this book, though, because if you're a shipper, and this is what's great about this this duology, there's something for everyone. So if you're a shipper, there's ships to your heart's content here. Everyone pairs up at the end. It's Well, I guess Nina's on her own, but in her heart. <laughs> <laughs> Buzzkill. 
I'm sorry, but there's great. I think Nina and Matthias have a lot of really romantic moments. There's some great moments from this one. I texted you guys because it like literally stopped me in my tracks when I was reading. I was like, guys, this is like really hot. It's like right after they break him out of prison, he like hates her at that point because he like uh, she lied and like got him thrown into to prison and she's asking him like you know what happened in the dreams and he says horrible things the worst kinds of torture you drowned me slowly you burned my heart from my chest you blinded me and then he goes on to say you kissed me whispered stories in my ear you sang to me and held me as i slept your laugh chased me into waking you always hated my laugh i loved your laugh nina and your fierce warrior's heart i might have loved you too might have once before she had betrayed him those words carved in ache into her chest. She knew she shouldn't speak, but she couldn't help herself. And what did you do, Matthias? What did you do to me in your dreams? The ship listed gently. The lantern swayed. His eyes were blue fire. Everything he said as he turned to go. Everything. It's good. I mean, like, hate to love is like one of my favorite tropes in romance anyway. So to have this like hate to love to hate to love that they go through is is very satisfying to me as well. I, I really like to read it. And then, like, he just is so besotted then by Crooked Kingdom is kind of given way to a lot of that. And he tells her, you are in a flower. You're every blossom in the world blooming at once. You are a tidal wave. You're a stampede. You are overwhelming. Poor Matthias. He just wanted her to wear those sweaters. I'm going to read mine, Corinne, and you can't cry, okay? Okay, <laughs> okay. okay, ready for this? Bury me so I can go to Dell. Bury me so I can take root and follow the water north. I promise, Matthias, I'll take you home. Nina, he said, pressing her hand to his heart. I am already home. (laughs) I can't make promises. I can't. I can't make make promises. Oh, I'm sorry, listeners. Guys, I have a lot of feelings, but... Listen, if I were one of our listeners, waiting for the moment where you start crying would be my favorite part. Make it a drinking game, you guys. It happened a long time ago. Just chug your drink when Corinne starts crying. (laughs) Um, And then, do you have anything else you'd like to add for you, Matthias, uh, Tasia, before I move on? I'm going to give Wyland and just for a moment. No, no, go ahead. So Wyland and Jasper, I feel like they're a more subtle ship. They don't have like these big, swoony, romantic moments. But I do like when Jasper is kind of like distracted and distraught after dealing with his father. And he mistakes Koi for Wyland. And he kisses Koi, who is just like game in it here. Like he just really (laughs) wants Jasper. (laughs) Gotta respect the game from Koi, but it's not what he's interested in. And he immediately kisses him and he thinks it's Wyland. And he's like this isn't as good as I thought it was going to be. And then Wylan walks in and he's like, oh shit, that was not Wylan. And then eventually I, it's very important to me that their first kiss is when Wylan looks like Wylan again. It's that's, I, I think that's very important. But then uh, when he finally kisses him, Jasper's internal monologue is, this was the kiss he'd been waiting for. It was a gunshot. It was prairie fire. It was the spinner of Maker's Wheel. Jasper felt the pounding of his heart. Or was it Wyland's? Like a stampede in his chest, and the only thought in his head was a happy, startled O. Oh. So, that's nice. And, that, you know, they're going <laughs> to live in that house together. And it's very sweet. Wyland's going to play his flutes, and Jasper's going to read to him. 
And Wyland's going to be a sugar daddy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> a literal sugar daddy. <laughs> I sent you guys what I found on like Tumblr. Someone on like the Grishaverse wiki page had changed like Jasper's bio to be like Jasper Fahey, father, Colin Fahey, like blah, 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 blah. And then it was like relationships and it said Wyland Van Eck and then parentheses sugar daddy. <laughs> and so it's just like, who did this? I, I appreciate it. I liked it. All Who right. are you? I want to shake your hand. <laughs> uh, well, okay. Any other big swoon warning moments? We, we're going off the rails here. I knew I it was yeah. going to happen. I knew it was we caught the big ones, I think. We um, did. I mean, did we talk about the bandage? Well, we did the kiss on the neck. Yeah. So, okay. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Very, very important. Did I mention the bandage? <laughs> <laughs> so rewind about the bandages, yeah. right? So, <laughs> tending to stab wounds. So sexy. And kind of, it always <laughs> is. What's up with that? It is. Um, uh, oh, I'm just going to read one more here. One last cousin. Because <laughs> I'm just scrolling through the notes and I see it. She felt his knuckles slide against hers. Then his hand was in her hand. His palm pr- was pressed against her own. A tremor moved through him. Slowly, he f- let their fingers entwine. What a moment. I mean, what what progress from Kaz. It's, it's great. We love to see it. Briefly, before we go, uh, we don't want to talk too much about King of Scars. We're not going to talk about about King of Scars and speculation for that yet, but let's talk a little briefly about show speculation. I know we talked about it with Aubrey when we covered the trilogy. Jesse, I know you listened to that. Do you have any thoughts, theories about like how they're going to interweave this in the show? How are they going to depict things in the show? I'm kind of curious because I think I read online that it'll be 50% the Grisha trilogy and then 50% Kirky kingdom um, crows, um, which I think makes sense. I really don't know if there's enough story for the trilogy really I, to make a whole big epic show of it or enough like good personalities other than the darkling. Um, my, here's my theory at the end of the first season, the crows will have reached the ice court. Oh, interesting. Uh, so all Did you see we- the title list? Yeah, they, have, they the released last a, episode. The last episode is No Mourners. Yeah. So I, oh. my theory is in that episode, because the Six of Crows part of the series is supposed to be like a prequel, right? Mm-hmm. So it's pre-Six of Crows. So I think the No Mourners part oh. is maybe when he oh, okay. when he makes the that like elite little cell group, when he, when the Six of Crows actually form. I just got chills thinking about that. It's going to be so good. Like a fellowship moment yeah yeah oh okay yeah when he's like come to the ice court with me like when he pulls everybody Mm -hmm. together and that would be like really kind of a fun surprise too and maybe we won't get him but as of now wylan is the only crow that's not cast um lee has tweeted that he's not in season one but like he makes an appearance at the end because there's something the crew that would be interesting um and i guess that makes sense then because i think it's only- weird though because they have matthias and matthias joins the group after wyland does well so both matthias and nina are like guest actors on the show the only series regulars are kaz Inej, and jasper out of the crows and then out of the trilogy it's malalina and the darkling so those are like the main characters so i don't think we're gonna get a ton of nina and matthias like, so I could see them like being peppered in at the end as we maybe get some of their backstory. We see like the flashbacks to their um, escape or their survival after the shipwreck or something. And then it's like tied in 
to that big culmination. Oh, that'd be great. Oh. Yeah, I think you're right, Tasia. I take back my guess, which was not educated enough. <laughs> <laughs> um, like forming the crew sort of is the first season. I like that a lot because I think there's a lot you could do establishing Kez and the barrel and in Ketterdam. There's a ton that can be done even before they um, come up with the plan. So yeah, well, and you've got whole Kaz's backstory probably to tell, like in in flashbacks or whatever. Let's hope not looking don't get forward to too that. Graphic. <laughs> we'll see. I don't want to see too many bloated. Yeah, oh, God, it would not be great. But um, yeah, and I just I think a good place to end, perhaps on on that front, is we did spend a good amount of time last episode talking about how uh, Ben Barnes is the Darkling is going to be great. We need to talk briefly, particularly about the Kazan and Nudge casting is so good. Perfect. I like the Kaz casting in particular is like, he just recently did this photo, photo shoot. Freddie Carter he keeps sharing pictures from it. I was like, he's on like a, a dock and he's wearing like a long coat. I was like, this is a Kaz Becker photo shoot. Like it's incredible. I mean, he's I such a perfect Kaz. He's so good. And she's so good too. So I'm really excited to see them. And she's doing like full on combat circus training. Like it's like her posts, her videos that she's posted, the actress that's playing an edge. Um, I don't remember her name. Of that time, right? um, Amita. She's posted this like, really cool, like circus. Like she's going full out. And I am so excited. The casting is just phenomenal. Uh, Amita Suman. That's her oh, name. Yeah. So. Watching oh, an edge do her perfect. thing is going to be so yeah. much fun. Right. Well, Jesse, thank you so much for coming back again twice in a month. We loved having you. We couldn't have done this without you. Our, Literally we all have very pleasure. intense feelings about this. <laughs> it was a lot of fun. Um, next week, we've talked about before, we will be covering King of Scars, um, a shocking turn of events. It's just going to be me and Tasha. So <laughs> for the first time since our first episode. Yes. Um, so we're excited to wrap up the Grish verse then. Since we won't have anyone with us and since we've kind of like skirted around King of, of Scars and how we kind of think things might be going, we would really love if you guys would send emails to us with your thoughts and suggestion or your, your theories about where things are going after the ending of King of Scars. Um, that would be, I think, really interesting. We'd love to like read some of them. And it, it's, I have thoughts and um, I would like to hear what other people's thoughts are because I'm sure I'm not right. So if you guys would, wouldn't mind emailing us, we're at actyouragepod at gmail.com. Uh, the podcast can be found online on Instagram and Twitter at actyourage. Jesse, where can our listeners find you and your podcast, The Daily Nightly, online? Yes. Yeah, so um, Annie and I have just wrapped up our coverage of Pride and Prejudice. You can check that out at our pod, uh, The Daily Nightly. And we have corresponding Instagrams and Twitters to go along with that. And we're just about to start our coverage of Jane Austen's book, uh, Mansfield Park, which I've never read. And so I'm pretty excited about it. So follow along. Cool. Tasia, where can people find you on the internet? You can find me on Instagram and Twitter at Rage Cakes. Great. And I'm on Instagram at Rin underscore reads. In addition to shooting us an email or connecting with us on socials, um, we would love it if you would rate and review us wherever you podcast. That would be very helpful to us. Um, other than that, friends, no mourners. <laughs> no funerals. funerals. <laughs> love it. <laughs> See you guys next week. <laughs> Yay. Bye. Bye.